Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and then sell the data to third parties. So go to expressvpn.com gold and get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is a hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend hours on multiple job sites looking for the candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Just visit Indeed.com slash Peter to start hiring right now. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing is not available to everyone. The stock market call that I made two weeks ago on my podcast titled Markets Push Back the Pal Pivot is looking to be pretty prescient. I recorded that podcast on Saturday, August 20th, which followed another big Friday sell-off. And that sell-off to me looked technically weak enough that I made the call that I thought the bear market rally that began off the June lows had finally ended. A lot of people believed that the June lows were the lows and that we were in a new bull market. But I never believed that. I always assumed that what we were experiencing was a head fake. It was just a bear market rally to create a false sense of confidence, to sucker in some new longs, ultimately to pull the rug out from under them and see the market crashing to new lows. And I still believe that we are going to take out those June lows. We haven't done that yet, but it looks like we are headed in that direction. In fact, since that August 20th podcast was recorded two weeks ago, the Dow is off 7%. S&P about 7.2%, and the NASDAQ is down by 8.6%. So we're off to a pretty good start on taking out those lows, but we haven't done it yet. But to me, it never made sense that anybody could have believed that the bear market was already over. I mean, we were barely off 20% in the S&P. That would have been a very mild bear market, a very short-lived bear market. But it makes no sense that the bear market that we're in now would be that shallow or would be over so quickly. I think we are in the early stages of a historic bear market, both in its severity and in its longevity. Not only are we starting from an unprecedented level of excess valuation, but it's also happening at a time of unprecedented macroeconomic imbalances. The economy has never been weaker while stocks have never been more overpriced. And we're at an inflection point because in recent history, every time the stock market was in trouble or every time the economy was in trouble, the Fed would come to the rescue with more cheap money. Well, it can't do that anymore. At least it's claiming it's not going to do that. And if it did do that, it would have dire ramifications. So for now, it's not doing it And the markets still don't understand what this means for the economy and what it portends for stock market prices. Investors need to understand that the stock market has literally been surfing a wave of liquidity. Because when we have a recession or a major stock market decline, 
The Fed floods the markets with liquidity. And so stock prices are floating on that sea of liquidity. The valuations are extreme. But now the Fed is pulling the plug, draining the markets of that liquidity at the time when the markets need it the most because earnings are under pressure because we are in a recession. This is still early. We've only been in this recession for about eight months, but it's going to be here for a lot longer than that. But as the recession worsens, more downward pressure is going to be exerted on corporate earnings. But as interest rates are rising, the value of those diminished earnings is falling even faster because you're discounting them with a higher interest rate. But maybe more importantly, rising interest rates themselves hurt corporate earnings because corporations are carrying unprecedented amounts of debt. Now, why do corporations have so much debt? The same reason that individuals have so much debt. For the same reason government has so much debt. That's because the Federal Reserve has made it so cheap to borrow money for so long. So because of the Fed, everybody is leveraged to the hilt. The economy has never been this leveraged and never been this dependent on the cheap money that the Federal Reserve is now taking away. So we're going to go through the mother of all economic withdrawals as the Fed is weaning us from this monetary heroin. But as corporations have to pay higher interest on their debt, that reduces their earnings because the money they give to their bondholders, they can't give to their stockholders in dividends or they can't use that money to buy back stock. So stock prices are going to come down and they have a long way to fall Anybody who thinks we're anywhere near the bottom just doesn't understand the stock market. And anybody who thinks the Fed is going to win this inflation fight doesn't understand inflation. And of course, they also don't understand economics. It's amazing that so many people are still talking about a soft landing as if something like that were even possible when we've already crashed. The only thing is we haven't burst into flames yet. But the debate seems to be whether or not the Federal Reserve needs to cause a recession in order to fight inflation. That's not actually what happens. The Fed doesn't have to set out to cause a recession. The recession is going to happen. In fact, it's already started as a consequence of the inflation fight. So it's not about whether the Fed needs to cause a recession to fight inflation. The reality is the Fed can't fight inflation without causing a recession. In fact, it's the Fed's own policy that was responsible for creating the leverage and the inflation. But because it accommodated so long, because it left monetary policy so loose for so long and allowed the economy to get so leveraged, allowed inflation to get this out of control, it's not about the fact that fighting inflation is going to cause a recession, it's going to cause a financial crisis. There is no way around that. And the reason I think so many people still don't get this is that they don't understand what caused the last financial crisis. They don't understand that it was the Federal Reserve. And they also don't understand that the Fed's policies subsequent to that crisis, which were supposed to alleviate the problems, actually made them worse. The problems have been compounded, but they've been kicked down the road. And we are dealing with those problems now, but few people seem to grasp that understanding, well, they are going to be in for a rude awakening. 
And that's why, unlike Paul Volcker, Jerome Powell will not be successful in his war against inflation. Powell will surrender and inflation will win. Because when push comes to shove and when we are in a financial crisis, Powell will not continue to fight inflation. He will give up that fight in order to try to save the economy and the markets from the consequences of that financial crisis. And that's when inflation will cause an even greater crisis in terms of the U.S. dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis, a fate that so far the U.S. has managed to avoid, but its ability to postpone that day of reckoning will rapidly come to an end. Getting back to the tape itself, the Dow Jones dropped 337 points on Friday. That's a decline of a little over 1%. And technically, again, we have a very weak close on a Friday, except this time I'm 100% certain we won't have a Black Monday. And that's because the markets are closed on Monday in observance of the Labor Day holiday. But that does raise the specter of a Black Tuesday. Maybe that doesn't sound as ominous as a Black Monday, but I don't think the market is looking good going into next week, just like it didn't look good going into the prior week or the week before that. The S&P was off by a similar percentage as the Dow. In fact, Friday's 1% loss for the Dow brought the weekly decline to 3%. S&P very similar off about 1.07% on Friday, down 3.3% on the week. The tech stocks got beat up a little more. The Nasdaq was down 1.36% on Friday, down 4% on the week. By the way, the Nasdaq is now down for six consecutive days. It hasn't done that since late July, early August of 2019. The Russell 2000 did a little better on the day. It was only off about 0.72%, but worse on the week where it dropped 4.7%. The even riskier stocks, the companies with no earnings like the ones that are held by Kathy Wood in her ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF dropped 2.7% on the day, 5.3% on the week. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is highly correlated with the ARK Innovation Fund due to the risky nature of Bitcoin, actually managed a 0.8% gain on Friday, but it was off 2.3% on the week. Bitcoin itself has been trading above and below 20,000 for several days now. As I'm recording this podcast, it's a bit below 20,000, about 19,800. So there seems to be a bit of a battle brewing. You've got a lot of buying below 20,000 and you've got a lot of selling just above 20,000. Now the question is, what will the market exhaust first? Will it exhaust the buying below 20,000 or the selling above? I think that there's a lot more selling above 20,000 than there is buying below. And I think at some point we are gonna run out of buyers and the bottom is gonna drop out and Bitcoin is gonna crash below its lows down below 10,000 before we get another meaningful bear market rally that ultimately rolls over with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies again making new lows.
Nowadays, we all spend a lot of time on our phones. We're doing everything on our phones, not just communicating with our friends, but sharing photographs, making online purchases. But the scary part is that your phone carrier collects all the data on whatever you're doing. They'll tell you it's so they can better understand your interests. But in reality, all they want to do is sell your data to advertisers, which includes all the websites you visit and basically everything you're doing online. The more information they can get on you, the larger their paycheck becomes. That's one of the reasons why I use ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com gold today to learn more. In fact, because I live in Puerto Rico, I get the added benefit of being able to access content that otherwise would be denied to me based on my location. Because by using the ExpressVPN, I'm able to fool the content provider into believing that I'm actually accessing their content from an authorized location. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and then sell it to third parties. All it takes is one tap of a button and then all your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does it shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN protects all your network data so you can stay private even when you're using your favorite apps. Whether you're an iPhone, Android, or tablet user, ExpressVPN works on all your devices. And the best part is one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. My whole family is able to use ExpressVPN. When your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross invasion of your privacy. You can either keep letting them cash in or you can visit expressvpn.com gold to get the same VPN I use. Take back your online privacy today and use my link to get three months free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com gold, expressvpn.com gold. Moving from fool's gold to real gold, the yellow metal bucked the downtrend in stocks on Friday and closed up about $14. Gold closed at $17.12.50 on the week. Now that is down about $25 from last week's close. And in fact, earlier this morning and yesterday, gold was trading below $1,700. In fact, it closed on Thursday below $1,700. But we really haven't taken out the lows. And I think there is a good chance that we've now double bottomed in gold and we're moving higher. We'll see. The key is, are we bucking the trend in stocks? Can stocks continue lower and gold move higher? Because in an environment like this, historically, gold and stocks would be negatively correlated. Gold would be seen as a safe haven from a falling stock market. But right now, everything is marching to the beat of the same drum, and that's Fed rate hikes. Everybody thinks the Fed is going to hike rates to succeed in its battle against inflation, and so everything is going down. Investors are buying dollars, and they're selling everything else, including gold and stocks, because they think the dollar is the only safe place to hide when you have a Fed committed to successfully fighting inflation. Well, once the markets begin to question that commitment and understand that even if the Fed is pretending to be committed, in reality, it can't be because of the severe adverse consequences of actually doing what it claims it can do, then we should see a divergence in stocks and gold because what is happening is definitely bearish for stocks, but it is also definitely bullish for gold. It's just that investors don't understand that yet. So maybe what we saw on Friday could be the beginning of that decoupling, although it's too early to call. Now, we saw the same divergence with the mining stocks, which had a pretty good up day on Friday. Of course, it followed a brutal down day 
on Thursday, where gold stocks mostly traded to new lows. But on Friday, the GDX was up 3.2%, but it still lost 4.5% on the week. And the juniors, the GDXJ, that index rose 3.9% on Friday, but still fell 5.3% on the week, despite that Friday rise. But again, we have to see if Friday's action really is the beginning of a long overdue decoupling between the overall market and gold and the mining stocks, or maybe Friday was just a one-day fluke, and that decoupling, while it will eventually happen, has not happened yet. And as is typically the case, we have the same type of thing happening with silver, only on a bigger scale. Silver managed to close Friday up 25 cents, back above $18 an ounce at $18.05, but it was off about 80 cents on the week. Of course, as you would expect, as gold and silver were falling on the week, the U.S. dollar rose. In fact, the dollar index rose from closing at 108.80 last week to 109.60. So we actually took out the high and we closed at a new high in the dollar index. So obviously the dollar index has some more room to go on the upside. Again, I think the dollar's upside is capped. I don't believe we're going to see as big a move up in the dollar as a lot of the dollar bulls believe, but the dollar will likely move a bit higher before it ultimately reverses and collapses lower. And until that happens, we're really not going to see a major move up in gold. Even if gold has found a floor, it really hasn't found a big enough catalyst for an explosive rally. I think when we really do get a big breakout in gold, it's going to be because we also have a breakdown in the dollar. Now, it's also possible, though, that gold can break out even before the dollar breaks down. And if that happens, if we can get an explosive move up in gold, even before the dollar breaks down, then I think that move up in gold will be the catalyst that causes the dollar to crash. It will be the straw that breaks the dollar's back because a big rise in the price of gold will shine a light on the vulnerabilities of the dollar and will show that the world is expressing a preference to hold gold over dollars. Because if gold can rise in an environment where the dollar is rising, and I'm not talking about gold rising in terms of euros or yen, but if gold can rise in dollar terms during an environment where the dollar itself is rising in euro terms or yen terms, if that rise can be meaningful, then I think it's going to send a huge signal to the currency markets that they need to get out of fiat and into real money, and that's gold. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Another market that is highly sensitive to inflation is the bond market, 
But thus far, bond investors still don't understand how much worse the inflation problem is going to get. They still have a lot of confidence that the Fed is going to succeed in fighting inflation, but they also understand that in the process, it's going to cause a recession. They just don't get how that recession is going to alter Fed policy and kick inflation into a whole new gear. Yields rose on the week, but again, not nearly as much as they should and not nearly as much as they will once investors figure this out. But perhaps more significantly than the rise in yields is what's happening to the yield curve, which is as inverted as I think I've seen it thus far. In fact, if you look at the yield on a six-month treasury bill, it's now 3.3%. That's higher than the yield on a 10-year treasury bond, which is 3.19%. In fact, it's almost the same as the yield on a 30-year treasury, which closed at 3.34. Now, the yield on a one-year treasury at 3.41, that's higher than the yield on a 10-year and the yield on a 30-year. In fact, now the one-year is the highest yield on the curve. Remember, not too long ago, the high watermark was five years. Then the high water mark became the two year, and now it's the one year. The one year is higher than the two year, and the two year is higher than the five year, which is higher than the 10 year. So the entire yield curve inverts from one year through 10 years. Now it normalizes from 10 to 30, but barely. It's pretty flat for the next 20 years. But the reason the market keeps moving up the point where yields are at a peak is because the market is accelerating its timetable for when the recession is going to start. It believes the recession is going to start sooner, and so it believes the Fed is going to cut rates sooner, and that's why the yield curve is moving the way it is. Now, as much as the Fed wants to deny that an ease is around the corner, bond investors are calling the Fed's bluff. But what they still don't understand is when the Fed actually reveals its cards, inflation is actually going to move much higher, not lower. And that is very bearish for bonds, not bullish. So investors are right about the pivot, but they're wrong in their understanding of what that pivot means for inflation and bond prices. Moving on from the markets themselves, I want to talk a little bit about the economic data that came out during the week and which helped drive the moves in the market. Of course, the most highly anticipated and perhaps politically significant numbers were the August jobs numbers. Let me start with the ADP report that came out on Wednesday because this one was much weaker than had been expected. The markets were expecting better than 300,000 private sector jobs to be created, yet the private sector delivered just 132,000 jobs. Now that weak ADP report may have raised expectations that the official jobs report that came out on Friday would also be weaker than expected as far as the number of jobs that would be created. I think the consensus there was also for about 300,000 jobs to be created. And the actual number came in a bit above that at 315,000. Although I think the range of estimates went as high as 390,000. So some people may have been disappointed that the number wasn't even higher than 315,000. But still, it was quite a bit better than the ADP number that came out on Wednesday. But what really surprised the markets was the move up in the unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate anyway, which was supposed to stay steady at three and a half percent. 
and instead it rose to 3.7%. That was above the high end of the estimates, which went from, I think, a low of 3.4 up to a high of 3.6. And the reason that the unemployment rate rose was that labor force participation finally rose as well. It moved up from 62.1 to 62.4. So you had more workers entering the workforce and because they couldn't find jobs, they're now considered unemployed. Now they didn't have jobs before, but in theory, they weren't looking for jobs. So even though they weren't working, they weren't technically unemployed, but now they're looking for jobs and they are unemployed. But This also brings up an interesting point that I touched on my last podcast because the markets were very excited that the JOLTS reports show that we have two jobs available for every unemployed worker. And this was supposed to be indicative of this strong labor market that means we have a strong economy because there are so many jobs available for people who want them. And my point was maybe those jobs are not really available. Maybe these are phantom jobs These are jobs that people either aren't qualified for or they don't want. And so that's the reason they're there. They can never be filled. And so they continue to pile up as job openings. I mean, for all we know, maybe the employers who are trying to find these people have actually given up looking, but maybe the listings are still online, you know, just in case on the odd chance that they actually can find somebody. Maybe they leave these help wanted ads up there. In fact, maybe companies are advertising for workers that they don't actually need. Maybe they're just building resumes for the future in case they do need them. But the bottom line is if those jobs were actually there and available, as all these people entered the labor force, they would have just taken some of those available jobs. The fact that people decided they want a job, yet they're now unemployed, means that those jobs didn't matter because they couldn't get any of those jobs. So what really shows the weakness in the labor market is not how many jobs are unfilled, but how many people are not working? How many people have either left the labor force or who are in the labor force and who can't find jobs? Or how many people who are working are forced to work multiple jobs, even multiple full-time jobs, because that may be the only way they can make ends meet? And by the way, there was some other weakness in this labor report. Average hourly earnings rose less than expected. They were supposed to rise by 04 they rose by 0.3. Now, some people might think, oh, this is good news because it means less inflation. Not really, because prices continue to rise. It just means that workers are falling further behind as prices outstrip their pay gains. But also, not only did average hourly earnings not rise as much as expected, but workers worked fewer hours than expected. We actually saw a decline in the work week from 34.6 hours to 34.5 hours. And so if workers are working fewer hours, they're earning less money, and that's making it even more difficult for them to afford the rapidly increasing cost of living. Now, after that weak economic data came out, we actually saw a rally in the stock market, a sell-off in the dollar, a rally in gold, because investors looked at the unexpected jump in the unemployment rate and average hourly earnings not rising as much as evidence that maybe the Fed will be able to back off, that the Fed won't have to be as aggressive in its inflation fight because both the economy and inflation may be weakening. And so we had a lot of false hope 
that temporarily lifted the market before it reversed and rolled over. In fact, we got some more weak economic data that came out a little later in the morning. We got the factory orders for July. The expectation was for a rise of 0.2%, which would have been a big slowdown over the 2% rise in June. Well, the June's 2% number was revised down to an increase of 1.8%. But the shocker was the full 1 percentage point decline in the July number. That was worse than even the low end of expectations, which was for a drop of 0.8. But the high end was for a rise of 0.8. In fact, this is the first time that we've seen a monthly drop in factory orders since September of 2021. And that 1% drop is actually the largest monthly drop since April of 2020 when the economy was in full COVID lockdown. So we're at a situation where factory orders have not been this week since the economy was in full lockdown, yet everybody is trying to tell us that the economy is great. Now, this second indication of a weaker economy sent the dollar to new lows and gold to new highs on the day. But those moves ended up being short-lived and reversed as we got news coming out of Gazprom that the Nord Stream pipeline was going to get shut down supposedly to fix an oil leak. No way to know for sure when it will be reopened. And so that sent the dollar higher as people dumped euros, anticipating how this would impact energy prices in the European economy. And so that rise in the dollar took steam at a gold rise. The interesting thing is that while the dollar never really regained those highs, gold almost came back up and still finished the day much closer to the highs than the lows. So again, maybe this is indicating some renewed strength in gold, and we'll see if we get some follow-through next week, particularly if we can get that decoupling that I mentioned where the stock market continues lower, but gold reverses and moves higher. Also, we got news that credit card debt in the United States in the second quarter surged by 13%. That's the biggest quarterly increase in credit card debt since 1999. Now, why are Americans using their credit cards so much? Because they have no choice. Prices have gone up a lot more than their incomes, and the only way they can afford to keep their economic heads above water is by putting more of what they buy on a credit card. And in fact, back in 1999, a lot of Americans were probably using their credit cards to buy new TV sets or new computers or to take vacations, whereas now Americans are using their credit cards to buy food. Because the only way a lot of American families can put food on their tables is if they borrow the money to pay for it. Now, we got some more economic news that came out on Thursday. The news was weak, but maybe not as weak as the markets had been expecting. So those beats ended up sending gold lower and the dollar higher. As investors thought, oh, if the economy is not as weak as we thought, maybe the Fed will be more aggressive than we thought. But the reality is a few numbers coming out less weak than expected doesn't indicate any underlying strength in the economy. Every once in a while, some of these weak numbers will beat expectations. But overall, the numbers are weak 
and they're going to get weaker as the recession worsens. But one of the numbers that came out on Thursday was construction spending. And while the number was a little weaker than anticipated, it was supposed to be flat and it fell by 0.4. We got a revision to the prior month, which was originally reported as negative 1.1. And that was revised to just negative 0.5. So maybe there was a little bit of hope. Hey, maybe things are not quite as bad as we thought. The year over year increase in construction spending was 8.5%. That was better than the originally reported year-over-year increase of 8.3% for the prior month. But since that was revised to up 9.6%, it was a bit of a deceleration. But overall, maybe these numbers were not as bad as people thought. But again, remember, these construction spending numbers are not index for inflation and we know that construction costs are up way more than eight and a half percent year over year so we're not constructing more we're actually constructing less we're just paying a lot more for what we are constructing and that is not a strong economy that is a weak economy ism number for august that also came out weak but not as weak as expected because the estimate was for 52, and that would have been an improvement over the 52.8 from July. Instead, we held steady at 52.8. So we didn't get any weaker, and I guess that was good news, but this is just a temporary reprieve. I'm confident that that number is headed south of 50. We also got the PMI number. This is the final read for August. That was 51.3, and instead we ended up getting 51.5 as the final. Still a weak number, just slightly less weak than expected. And of course, it didn't go down, right? The markets could have actually gotten a lower number. The final read could have actually revised the number lower. So the fact that it wasn't a lower revision, but an upward revision also helped. Then we also got some revisions to the second quarter productivity numbers, the last report was that productivity dropped by 4.6% during the quarter. That's an annualized rate. The consensus was that it would have improved to a drop of just 4.4, and instead, productivity only fell 4.1%. So the good news is that productivity dropped less than expected, but the bad news is that productivity dropped because that's still a big drop and that's especially problematic when you're worried about inflation because lower productivity means higher prices. Also, unit labor costs didn't increase as much as expected. That's one of the reasons that productivity improved. The original forecast was that unit labor costs were up 10.8%. They were expecting a revision to 10.7. Instead, we got 10.2. So again, these are bad numbers but the bar is pretty low, and so the numbers were not quite as bad as expected. And I think all of this is why we got that strength in the dollar and weakness in gold on Thursday. But again, the markets still don't get it. It doesn't really matter if we get some one-off numbers that aren't as bad as expected. This is a bad recession, and it's going to get much worse. So the data is going to get much worse. But eventually, Investors have to connect the dots between weak economic data and higher, not lower, inflation. And when the Fed ultimately pivots and gives up the pretense of fighting inflation to bail out the economy and the markets by creating even more inflation.
One of the keys to running your own business is understanding that every single hire counts and no hiring partner understands that better than Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed? Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like instant match assessments and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job. One of the things I like most about Indeed is how much it simplifies the hiring process and allows you to do all your hiring in one place. And with Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and then you can invite them to apply right away. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide that are already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything you can for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. So visit Indeed.com slash Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. And in fact, when it comes to inflation, Vladimir Putin has a much better understanding of inflation than Jerome Powell or anybody on the FOMC or anybody in the Biden administration or maybe anybody on Wall Street. Either he has a better understanding or at least he's more honest in expressing his opinion. Because just before I started recording this podcast, I happened to catch a clip of a speech that Putin gave. And I haven't seen the entire speech. I need to look for it on the internet. It's got to be there somewhere. But this little clip, which I saw on Twitter, I retweeted it. It's gotten a lot of views so far on Twitter. I would recommend that you try to find it on my Twitter feed. But Putin really hit the nail on the head in blaming global inflation on the Federal Reserve and also the European Central Bank. He pointed out correctly that since COVID, the U.S. has increased its money supply by 40%, the ECB by 20%, and a lot of that money has been sloshing around the global economy, bidding up prices, especially U.S. dollars. Putin pointed out that America's imports have gone from $250 billion a month pre-COVID to $350 billion a month post-COVID. So Americans are taking the money that the Federal Reserve printed and that was doled out by the U.S. government and they are going on a global shopping spree. They are using all this money to buy goods from overseas. They're outbidding emerging market consumers for their own production. So it's America that is driving inflation all over the world because as Putin pointed out, there is no increased productivity associated with all this money printing. American imports are way up but exports are not. We are not putting goods into the global economy. We're simply removing goods from the global economy and replacing them with paper. So we are bidding up prices and other nations that haven't been able to print the reserve currency, they are also suffering. So when you have Chair Powell or Biden trying to say, hey, inflation is a global problem, so don't blame us, The global problem is their fault too because the dollar is the reserve currency. And if we print dollars and Americans use those dollars to buy goods all over the world that they did not produce, we are bidding up prices all over the world. So Putin is 100% 
100% correct that the U.S. is the source of the problem. But he also understands the only way to solve the problem, and that's for the U.S. dollar to cease functioning as the world's reserve currency. Because when the dollar crashes, then it won't matter how many we print because we won't be able to buy anything. And I think Putin understands that and he's working with the Chinese and probably others around the world to try to dethrone the dollar to stop this global plunder. Because the US is gonna take advantage of the world as long as it's in a position to do it. And the fact that Putin understands that and is in a position to potentially do something about it, that may be the real reason that the U.S. considers him so dangerous. It's not the threat to the Ukraine that they're worried about, but the threat to the United States and its ability to continue to print the world's reserve currency and then to export the inflation that it creates to the rest of the world. In fact, the Biden administration has just proposed another $13.7 billion in new aid to the Ukraine. That's part of a larger emergency spending package that has more money for COVID relief. Again, it's money we don't have. We have to borrow. So the Fed has to print it. This relief is inflationary. But this $13.7 billion in new aid is going to come on top of the $40 billion that we've already provided to Ukraine this year. That package was passed in May. And at the time, they said that that's going to make it to the end of the year. And yet here we are in the beginning of September and that $40 billion has already run out. And we now we need another 13.7. In fact, it's very likely that but for all this financial aid the U.S. is giving to the Ukraine, the war with Russia would already be over. Zelensky probably would have had plenty of incentive to come to some kind of truce with Putin, but because we have provided them with so much money, and who knows how much of this money is actually getting into the hands of corrupt government officials in the Ukraine and is not really being used to fight the Russians. A lot of it is, but I'm sure a lot of it is skimmed off the top. And because we continue to finance this war, this is a major reason why the war is not coming to an end. Because otherwise, the cost of the war would be so prohibitive that the Ukraine would have to act more responsibly and figure out a way to bring it to an end. But because we're covering the costs, we take away that incentive, and so the war continues. But again, what is the real reason that the Biden administration wants this war? Do they really care so much about the Ukraine? Or is there a much bigger hidden agenda at work here? Now, in sharp contrast to this very honest speech delivered by Russian President Vladimir Putin, I also listened to a very dishonest speech delivered by U.S. President Joe Biden. The setting for this speech was Philadelphia's Independence Hall. That is the birthplace of our nation because that is where the founding fathers put their John Hancocks on the Declaration of Independence. Now, one thing that was particularly infuriating about this speech is that President Biden was acting as if he was there in the spirit of the framers, that he was there to continue their dream and expand on the principles that were established in Philadelphia back in 1776, when in reality, President Biden represents everything that our founding fathers were rebelling against. But before I really get into that, I want to talk a little bit about what everybody else is talking about before I get into what I really want to talk about. 
and that is the tone of the speech and how divisive it was and the fact that it really was more of a political speech aimed at denigrating his opponents than really talking about America. And in fact, he really vilified not only the former president, Donald Trump, but pretty much just about everybody who voted for Donald Trump or who still supports Donald Trump. He calls them MAGA Republicans, as if somehow there's something wrong with wanting to make America great. But this is now a code word. If you are a MAGA Republican, well, you're a racist or you're a white supremacist and you are an enemy of democracy. Now, first of all, the president mentioned the word democracy 25 times in a 25-minute speech. And so he seemed to really want to make this about democracy, mainly so he can cast Trump and the MAGA voters as being enemies of democracy. They want to undermine democracy. They want to thwart the will of the people. Now, why does he say that? Well, because there are a number of Republicans that still question the outcome of the last presidential election, and they think that Trump actually won. They think Trump got more votes in some of these key states, but they believe that there was voter fraud. But according to Biden, that means they want to overturn democracy. If they're being honest in their belief, they believe they're defending democracy because they think there was fraud. They don't think Biden won the election fair and square. They think Trump won and it was stolen by Biden. So if that's what you believe and you're trying to somehow enforce that through the legal system, you are not trying to threaten democracy. You are trying to support democracy. But my real beef comes with democracy itself because democracy is the threat. It's the threat to the republic. Now, Biden actually mentioned the word republic one time because once he said that Trump and the MAGA Republicans were a threat to our republic. So at least in that instance, he got the form of government we have right. But every other reference to democracy was wrong. America is not supposed to be a democracy. In fact, on many occasions, Biden made reference to the Declaration of Independence. The word democracy does not appear in the Declaration of Independence, nor does it appear in any of our founding documents. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. But what is in the Constitution is republic. The Constitution guarantees to every state a republican form of government. There is no mention of democracy. And in fact, anybody who looks back at our founders and reads anything they wrote they hated democracy. They called it mobocracy. The whole purpose of the American Republic was to protect us from democracy. Just recite the Pledge of Allegiance. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. Not the democracy, the Republic. Now, one word that Biden did mention several times that was very much in the spirit of the 1776 Declaration of Independence, and that is liberty. But Biden doesn't really understand what liberty means because while he is claiming to support liberty, all of his policies are meant to restrict liberty because what the framers meant when they talked about liberty was liberty from government. It was the freedom to be left alone, to make their own decisions and for government to stay out of the way. But everything Biden wants to do is limit your individual liberty. 
Biden is all about collectivism. He's about group rights, not individual rights. In fact, Biden believes that individual rights must be sacrificed in favor of group rights or to achieve some political ends that Biden himself believes to be in the collective interest of the nation as a whole. In addition to mischaracterizing our founding principles, Biden actually told a lot of lies as part of his speech. One of the lies had to do with COVID, and he claimed that COVID was no longer controlling our lives. Well, COVID never controlled our lives. It was the government that used COVID as a pretense to control our lives. He also claimed that American manufacturing was coming alive in the heartland and that Made in America was finally back. I don't know what the president is talking about, but even Donald Trump used to tell these lies about the resurgence in American manufacturing. None of this is happening. Our trade deficits have never been bigger. America has never been more reliant on foreign manufacturers than it is right now. He also repeated the lie that more Americans are working now than ever before. That's not true. But one thing is true. There are a lot of Americans who are working harder than ever before. They're working more jobs than ever before. There are a lot of Americans who don't want to work, who would rather be retired, but have no choice. They've been forced to work because the soaring cost of living gives them no choice. In fact, President Biden even promised to cure cancer. But what really bothered me the most was not Biden falsely invoking the term democracy or his misunderstanding of the term liberty or even his lies about the economy and his accomplishments. But Biden pretending that he somehow had anything in common with the signers of that declaration or that he in any way shared their principles or their philosophy of government and was there to continue the unique experiment in freedom that was conceived in that convention in Philadelphia in 1776. In fact, on several occasions during that speech, President Biden repeated part of the most famous line from the Declaration of Independence without putting it in context and reading the entire sentence. The famous words that Biden repeated were that all men were created equal. Now, first of all, I'm actually surprised that Biden supports that passage because after all, it says men. But of course, the framers of the Constitution weren't politically correct. And by men, they meant mankind, which would, of course, include women. But the most significant part of that sentence is what comes next. And what comes next was not mentioned once by Joe Biden. And that's because he either doesn't understand it or completely opposes it. But let me read the entire sentence from the beginning. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Now, what does that mean? That means that we have government to secure our rights. What are the rights that government secures? Life, liberty, and property. That's it. That's why we have government. We don't have government to give us stuff. Government is not here 
to give us food, to give us clothing, to give us health care. It's not there to give us anything that we don't have. It's merely there to protect what we already have. But that's not what Biden is all about. Biden is about giving people stuff. But in order to give some people stuff, you must take that stuff away from other people. And that is exactly what the signers of the Declaration of Independence did not want. In fact, if the signers of the Declaration of the Independence were around today, they would follow their own advice and they would want to abolish the current federal government because the federal government is doing much worse things to American citizens now than King George ever did to colonial Americans back then. In fact, among the list of grievances that the Declaration of Independence enumerated was, quote, he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Now, what better way to describe the Internal Revenue Service? And Joe Biden himself has just proposed 87,000 new IRS agents may be armed to harass the people and eat out their substance. Do you think the signers of the Declaration of Independence would have been in favor of the IRS or in fact, the income tax itself? Absolutely not. In fact, one of the other objections that the signers had was to King George taxes. But none of the taxes that King George imposed were anywhere near as onerous as the income tax. There were three tax acts in particular that colonial Americans and the founding fathers found particularly abhorrent and which helped form the basis for the Declaration of Independence. The first one was the sugar tax of 1764. And this imposed a tax on sugar and molasses of three to six cents per gallon. That was the tax. It also applied to wine, coffee, and textiles. Then there was the Stamp Act of 1765, and that imposed a two shilling and six pence tax on newspapers, magazines, and other legal documents. You actually had to buy this special paper that had the King's stamp on it, and you needed that paper in order to create these documents. The tax also applied to playing cards and dice. So I guess they were going after gaming with a bit of a sin tax. And then you had the Townshed Act of 1767 and 1768. And this placed indirect taxes on a lot of imports from Britain, including things like glass, lead, pants, paper, and tea. And of course, it was the tax on tea that ultimately resulted in the famous Boston Tea Party in 1773 when Bostonians dumped tea into Boston Harbor, which is also the act of protest from which the modern day Tea Party movement got its name. These were the taxes that so infuriated colonialists that they were willing to make rebellion against their king and the signers of the Declaration of Independence were risking their very lives by signing that document. But the reality is the taxes were not that high. Sure, nobody likes paying taxes, but compared to what we pay today, colonial Americans had a very sweet deal from King George. In fact, I did a little research, and if you added up all these taxes that were paid on all these items, all these excise taxes, Colonial Americans, on average, paid about 1% to 1.5% of their annual incomes in taxes to the king. 
That's it. Now, of course, most colonial Americans were farmers, right? They just farmed their own land, but they generated income doing that. And their total tax burden was about one to one and a half percent. This was a very low burden. In fact, it was a lot lower than the burden that was borne by the British citizens themselves living in Britain because the king taxed his subjects there at an average rate of between five and seven percent. So moving to the colonies was kind of like a tax haven because if you were paying five to seven percent in Britain and if you journeyed to the new world and went to the colonies, you could reduce your taxes down to one, one and a half percent. These tax rates pale in comparison to what modern British citizens or modern Americans are paying. You've got the government in Great Britain and the United States with income tax rates of 40 to 50 percent. Could you imagine the uproar if King George ever tried to impose an income tax on anybody? He would have had the shortest reign in history. They would have stormed the palace off with his head. No king in history ever imposed, to my knowledge, an income tax because even though kings have absolute power, you know, they rule by divine right, nobody would dare do something as horrible as an income tax because you still need to have the support of your subjects. You still have to be popular and nobody who would do something as bad as an income tax. I mean, think about not only how high the tax is, but how much work you have to do to comply with it. How many of your individual liberties you have to surrender just to be compliant with the tax laws. In fact, if the signers of the Declaration of Independence ever believed that one day we would have an income tax and we would impose it on ourselves, they never would have rebelled. They probably would have stuck with the king. You know, it's good to be the king, but even the king didn't have it good enough that he could get away with imposing an income tax. It's ironic that a tax that no king could ever impose on its subjects, supposedly free American citizens have imposed on themselves. This just goes to show you that democracy could be an even greater threat to individual liberty than a monarchy. The essence of liberty is not just freedom from government, but the freedom to keep the fruits of your own labor, to own your own income. If you think about it in these terms, when you have anarchy and there's no government, then you pay no taxes. So you get to keep 100% of what you earn. The extreme opposite from an individual freedom perspective would be slavery. Because under slavery, you don't get to keep anything that you earn. Everything that you earn belongs to your master. You get nothing, the master gets everything. But of course, that doesn't mean that none of the fruits of your labor end up benefiting you because your master still has to feed you, still has to clothe you, provide you with shelter, health care when you get sick, because otherwise you're going to die and he's going to lose out on a very valuable investment. So you still get to benefit from your labor, even though the fruits of your labor belong to somebody else who gets to decide the best way to share them with you. In fact, to put it in more modern terms, you're in a 100% tax bracket where your master takes 100% of your income and provides you with things like food, clothing, and shelter instead of allowing you to keep your income and providing those things for yourself. Unfortunately, that sounds a lot like modern America, except we're not quite in the 100% tax bracket yet. So if freedom is characterized by how much of your income you get to keep, and if colonial Americans got to keep 99% 
of what they earned because they were only in the 1% tax bracket. But modern Americans only get to keep 50 to 70% of what they earn because they're in the 30, 40, or 50% tax bracket. Who is more free? Was it colonial Americans living under King George or modern Americans living under what has become a democracy? The answer is clear. Yes, we have a lot more democracy now, but we have a whole lot less freedom.